I'm Dave Rubin and joining me today is one of the last sane men in Washington, D.C., as well as Dr. Fauci's worst nightmare, Senator Rand Paul. Welcome back to the Rubin Report. Glad to be with you, Dave. Senator, I have a short list here of people that are sane in Washington, D.C. You're at the top of the list. And then I put Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and Ted Cruz. Um, well, you know, you got any, of, any other company those, in that town? Two of those three are no longer here, Dave. I mean, I know this is a new <laughs> class, but Lincoln and Washington no longer here. But it is a small group. I felt group. I had to pad the list a little, you know? It's a small group. Yeah, I mean, how does that make you feel on a day-to-day -day basis dealing with some of the nonsense that we're gonna spend these 20 minutes talking about that it seems that everything that a good, decent libertarian has warned about for a long time just seems to be ushering in every second. We wake up and another infringement on this or that is here. But you know, I think uh, politicians would be surprised. I go home and people come up to me and they thank me for standing up to these people. Um, and I think that a lot of people think if they stand up, they'll get in trouble with their constituents. I think it's the opposite. People at home are proud of the fact that I'll stand up when nobody else will, and that I'm saying things that they're thinking at home, but nobody in Washington seems to be defending them on. And it's amazing how many people are speaking out. One of the things I've been impressed with is I don't know a lot of NBA players, but I talked to Jonathan Isaacs the other day. Mm -hmm. I've seen his video, his interview. Smart young man, makes a measured response says that he wants to make his own medical decisions, as I do, you know, having had the disease based on the, on, the, on the literature, based on the scientific data. I've even said I might get vaccinated someday if the data looks like it indicates that I need to be. But the thing is, is we have millions of Americans and nobody's representing them up here. They're sort of like, just blindly follow, blindly do as you're told. And that's not the American way. The American way is actually to question authority, to debate, to kibitz, to do you, you know, whatever it is, to try to get at the truth. But we figure out the truth individually, not as a collective. Yeah, I shared a clip this morning of astrophysicist Carl Sagan, who's long gone, but he was talking about how healthy skepticism is the one thing that guards us from authoritarianism. And if you were to say that now, you know, you're basically considered Far right. But with everything you said in mind, you had a rather extraordinary exchange with Health and Homeland Secretary Javier Becerra. So we're going to throw to about a minute of that. Mr. Becerra, are you familiar with an Israeli study that had uh, 2.5 million patients and found that the vaccinated group was actually seven times more likely to get infected with COVID than the people who had gotten COVID naturally? Senator, I'd have to get back to you on that one. I'm not familiar with that study. Well, you think you might want to be if you're going to travel the country insulting the uh, millions of Americans, including NBA star Jonathan Isaac, who have had COVID, recovered, look at a study with 2.5 million people and say, well, you know what? It looks like my immunity is as good as a vaccine or not. And in a free country, maybe I ought to be able to make that decision. Instead, you've chosen to travel the country calling people like Jonathan Isaac and others, myself included, flat earthers. We find that very insulting, goes against the science. Are you a doctor or a medical doctor? I've worked uh, over 30 yeah. years on health so policy. You're, you're not a medical doctor. Do you have a science degree? And yet you travel the country calling people flat earthers who have had COVID, looked at studies of millions of people, and made their own personal decision that their immunity they naturally acquired is sufficient. But you presume somehow to tell over 100 million Americans who have survived COVID, 
they have, we have no right to determine our own medical care. You alone are on high, and you've made these decisions, a lawyer with no scientific background, no medical degree. This is an arrogance coupled with an authoritarianism that is unseemly and un-American. You, sir, are the one ignoring the science. The vast preponderance of scientific studies, dozens and dozens, show robust, long-lasting immunity after COVID infection. Even the CDC does not recommend measles vaccine if you have measles immunity. The same was true for smallpox. But you ignore history and science to shame the flat earthers, as you call them. You should be ashamed of yourself and apologize to the American people for being dishonest about naturally acquired immunity. You want more people to choose vaccination? So do I. You want to lessen vaccine hesitancy? So do I. You want to have that happen? Quit lying to people about naturally acquired immunity. Quit lording it over people, acting as if these people are deplorable and unwashed. Try persuasion instead of government cudgels. Try humility instead of arrogance. Try freedom instead of coercion. But most of all, try understanding that there's no more basic medical right than deciding what we inject into our bodies. Today, after hearing that millions of people in a study prove, show without a doubt that there's a great deal of immunity from getting it naturally, do you want to apologize to the 100 million Americans who suffered through COVID, survived, have immunity, and yet you want to hold them down and vaccinate them? Do you want to apologize for calling those people flat earthers? Senator, I appreciate your question and appreciate that everyone has their opinion. Uh, we follow the facts and the science at HHS. We use the expertise of the medical professionals, the scientists at uh, HHS to make decisions. Uh, it's a team effort, and we rely on what is on the ground showing us results. Except for the dozens and dozens of studies. In fact, most, if not all, of the studies show robust immunity from getting the disease naturally. The CDC says if you've had measles and have immunity, you don't have to be vaccinated. The same was true of smallpox. You're selectively doing this because you want us to submit to your will. You have no scientific background, no scientific degrees, and yet you aren't really concerned about 100 million Americans who had the disease. You just want to tell us, do as you're told. That's what you're telling us. You want to mandate this on all of us. You're going to tell us if I have 100 employees, you're going to put me out of business with a $700,000 fine if I don't obey what you think is a science. Don't you understand that it's presumptuous for you to be in charge of all the science? Have you ever heard of a second opinion? I can't go to my doctor and ask my doctor's opinion. I mean, this is, is, is incredibly arrogant combined with this authoritarian nature that you think, well, we'll just tell all of America to do what I say and they better or we'll find them or put them in jail or not let them go to school or not let them travel. The science is against you on this. The science is clear. Naturally acquired immunity is as good as a vaccine. The Israel study actually showing it better. This isn't an argument against the vaccine, but it's an argument for letting people make a decision who already have immunity. You seem pretty calm and measured there. Do you think any of this gets through to these people? Well, you know, the arrogance, he came to my home state and pr proudly proclaimed that anybody who didn't agree with him on vaccine policy was a flat earther. And frankly, I think they're the flat earthers. They're the ones not paying attention to science. In fact, 
if you are directing science for the country or directing policy in that area for the science, and you say that science is settled, you're clearly not a scientist because the science is never settled in any field. In fact, that's how we get to the truth. Scientists, like everybody else, argue back and forth You know, on the data. They produce another experiment specifically to disprove another scientist or to prove their point, and then other scientists come back and forth. And the truth is determined by that process of argumentation. It used to be that journalism was somewhat that way too, that we argued back and forth, but now there's no, there's no real argumentation because if you state an opinion that someone disagrees with on the left, they don't want your opinion to be heard. They want you to be nullified and sent into a dark corner and never seen again. And that's the opposite of people who actually are skeptical and want to find the truth. So when you talk to them about monoclonal antibodies or that you've had COVID, whatever it might be, and we see these hearings and they just sort of don't respond or, or there's just no, oh, we should look into that further. Is, is anything happening after the hearings other than a nice viral moment? I mean, is anyone looking again at the data and going, boy, you know, it is, it is a year and a half after two weeks to flatten the curve. Maybe we did do something wrong here. People are watching at home the same way people are watching your podcast now. They're not watching the nightly news on CNN, but I'll give you an example. I called up a supporter in Tennessee today, and he says he has 175 employees. He said after he heard about what I was saying on the monoclonal antibodies, they have a weekly meeting with their employees where they talk to them about health strategies. They talked about monoclonal antibodies and what it takes to be an advocate for your family to get treatment. One of uh, a prominent Republican in Kentucky, I talked to him six months ago and told him about monoclonal antibodies. He's been fully vaccinated. He got COVID, was getting sicker. No one was offering it to him. I intervened and helped him to get the monoclonal antibodies, not with one phone call, with three phone calls because there was such resistance from various parties on this. And it took the follow-up to get that done. Not enough people know that there is a treatment. Look, this is beyond the debate on vaccinated or unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. Both groups can get sick and are getting sick. But the idea that the government would own all of this medicine, the monoclonal antibodies, and be in charge of distributing it, we've accepted Chinese socialism. We may have gotten the virus from them. Now we're accepting Chinese socialism in the distribution of the potential remedy, and it's not working very well. So, I mean, is that really what this is all about, that they are leading us to vaccine mandates, not even because this is really about COVID, but this is the beginning of some sort of social credit system where, yes, you're a good citizen because you got the vaccine mandate. Oh, and you're also a good citizen because you didn't speak out about the government, et cetera, et cetera. Is that really where we're headed with this? Yeah, and even if you imagine that there is a role for government doctors, public health people prescribing what we should do or giving us advice, they're giving the wrong advice. So if you're 85 years old, your chance of dying from COVID is 10,000 times greater than a 10-year-old. So should we be mandating vaccines on 10-year-olds or suggesting to 85-year-olds that either a booster or a potential new Delta variant vaccine might be good for you? That's a debatable point. If you're 85 mm -hmm. years old, I would listen to what they're saying. But if you're 10 years old, it's not a good advice. So like in the United Kingdom, they're not pushing the vaccine on children. They're actually taking the vaccine they have and extending it as a possible booster for those who are at risk over age 65. So that's what sane people would be doing. Instead, Fauci tells you not, we don't have enough people vaccinated, so we have to force it on the children who are by and large not affected by this disease. So last I saw it, the CDC numbers, I'm not making it up, people can fact check me, CDC that said that under 18, 
0.2% of children will die of COVID. Not 2%, 0.002. Yet here I am in crazy Cali, where Newsom has now just said, uh, in effect, that all children, five and up, they're going to start with 12 and up, but they're going to try to get it down to five and up, have to be vaccinated. What would you do if you were a citizen in California right now? If you were just someone trying to keep their job, make sure that they could get their kid to school, what would you do? Move, move immediately, leave communist California and get away. It is a beautiful state. I love visiting. I mean, it would be a great place to live if it weren't for your government, but it's hard. Some people can't afford to move, but then again, some people can't afford to live there either because the taxes and the property taxes and everything else have, have ginned up property so much. Um, there isn't a great advice for, for people who can't afford to move. If you can afford to move, there are great places. I think even if you're a person of ordinary means, let's say you make 40 or $50,000 a year, which I think is a person of ordinary means, Think how much further your money would go in Texas, where they don't take taxes out of it, where property is less and apartments are less. That's why people are moving by the tens of thousands. Texas and Florida have no state income tax. So there is a great deal of mass migration going on. But the bottom line is people are going to have to decide whether they want freedom or coercion. And in California, they're choosing Democrats, but the Democrats are going to tell you what to do in your economic life. But now they're willing to tell you what to do in your personal medical decisions as well. I can't imagine wanting to live under that kind of rule. How worried are you that eventually, as we split more and more, and I sense that is where this is going and good people are just gonna leave, you know, if you care about freedom, you're just gonna leave these states. How worried are you that in a place like Kentucky or some of the other places you mentioned, Texas, Florida, that eventually the federal system will still just keep encroaching on them and just say, ah, we don't care about states' rights because clearly they don't care about any of our norms, First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, et cetera. It is a big concern because we're federalizing all of this. And now that you have Biden administration, many of the folks from California with bad ideas like Becerra are from California, are now in the administration. So yeah, we don't want California bringing their policy to Washington, D.C., nor do we want them in Kentucky. And this is a real problem. But it's a big battle, and it's really a battle between collectivism and individualism. People need to realize that the collectivists think that you are too stupid to make your own decisions, so experts in each field need to make these decisions for you, and that your individual rights don't matter. And the classic example of this is Dr. Fauci. In 2012, he said that yes, this gain of function is great research and we need to do it. We might get a, a leak and there could even be a scientist who starts a pandemic, but it'd be worth it. The only way it's worth it is if you discount four million individual lives that have died. If this came from the lab in Wuhan, which a lot of evidence points towards it coming from that lab, four million, maybe I think it's closer to five million. We're approaching five million people have died from this. But if you're a collectivist, you think, well, the greater good of research that has accumulated from this, in my estimable opinion, because my opinion is so much better than everybody else, and I'm the scientist that's the expert at the top, I think really the research is more important than the individual deaths, but that he's judging the collective to be more important than the individual, and that's what it leads to. That's why Mao would say, what is 45 million deaths you know, from famine when the greater good of socialism has come about? This is what socialism and collectivism breeds. Is that worship of the expert class also sort of the way they've figured out a perfect system here, meaning when, when the numbers go down, they say, oh, it's because we've still got everybody in masks and we've still kept people at home and they're vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. But then when numbers go up, they go, oh, it's just because not enough people are listening to us. So they've created this perfect system where no matter how much logic and reason you drop right now, you're still the bad guy. 
There's a lot of studies looking at the correlation between mandates and the incidence of the disease. It turns out that they are not proportional at all. There is no evidence that when a mandate is instituted, either a mask or stay six feet away from people or wear garlic around your neck, any of these things that they ask you to do, they don't seem to have any correlation with a reduction in incidence. In fact, as the, the mandates were coming on, in some cases, like in last January, the incidence was still going through the roof. Now, a month later, after millions of people are killed off, the curve comes down, but in all likelihood, it has more to do with immunity. But if you want to see the true dishonesty of these people, look at the interview on CNN where Dr. Fauci's finally asked a question about natural immunity. He looks at the camera, he looks at the interviewer, and he says, well, gosh, that you're right, that should be something we might want to look into. Really? The nation's leading expert on infectious disease and immunology thinks that after a year and a half and four million people dying, we might want to look at that. He knows very well the answer. You put him on a lie detector test and you ask him, is there naturally acquired immunity from COVID? He'll absolutely tell you yes. He's actually said it in interviews. He mm -hmm. wants to de-emphasize it because he thinks the collective will do better if they just blindly accept the vaccine. If you ask him, is there a chance there might be more side effects if you've already had COVID and you're a 15-year-old male? Is there maybe more of an incidence of myocarditis? His real answer is he doesn't care about one 15-year-old male. He cares about all 15-year-old males. So he cares about the collective. He doesn't care about your kid, which is not what most parents want when they go to the doctor. A doctor says, well, most 15-year-olds will be fine. Yours might die, but, you know, what's one kid when we, when we save the rest of them? Right, and we're also hearing all sorts of stuff from the CDC. Walensky the other day was saying this thing about, you know, women who are pregnant should get the vaccine and they sh and don't worry about breastfeeding or any of these things. The implication being, oh, we've studied this for a couple years and it'll be okay, but that's simply impossible at this point, right? I think that giving out advice is not a bad idea. So I have a sister who's an OBGYN and she did tell me that they have a 29-year-old uh, pregnant mom in their hospital who died just recently with COVID. So we, we shouldn't say that it can't happen and the judgment should be the individual and they have to do it. So for example, you'll meet young moms in the first trimester who won't drink a Diet Coke because they are worried about the development of their child in the first three months. That might be rational or irrational, but it's their child and their choice. It might be the same way with the vaccine. They might weigh that decision and they might say, well, I might do it in the second trimester. I might do it in the third trimester. Or they might say, for either religious reasons or medical reasons, I don't want to. In a free society, each individual makes their decision. So I wouldn't tell people not to get vaccinated or to be so afraid of it that if you're pregnant not to do it, there are some unknowns. I would say investigate it, listen to your doctor, talk to your doctor, read about the fact that some pregnant women have died in their 30s and in their 20s. But uh, by, the thing is, is in a free society, no one individual makes these decisions, and it's never right for one individual to make it because what if that individual's wrong? That means 330 million people. When Fauci is wrong, 330 million people are subject to that. If your local doctor is wrong, get another doctor, get another opinion, try to figure out the truth of this. But we're going in the wrong direction so rapidly. The question is, will we ever get our freedoms back after this is all done?
Yeah, it's just so extraordinary. I mean, the, the basic idea of the United States is individual rights. And as you're saying, it's like we're just throwing them out. So let's spend the remaining time uh, doing some basic math here because I've been told over the last week, time and time again by the President of the United States and many of the people in his administration that $3.5 trillion actually equals zero. Mm -hmm. I tried to put it on my calculator. It doesn't have enough digits. Can you help me with that math? I think most people are smart enough to say that there's nothing in life that's free. This is a bait and switch. This is the Democrat saying, you're going to get free college. You're going to get free daycare. You're going to get a free cell phone. Heck, we might even throw in a free car. You know, There's gonna be a lot of free stuff. But people know in, innately, they know that that's not true. So when, when Biden says it's not gonna cost anything, one of the ways they do the trickery of the math to try to make it seem as if it's not costing anything or costing that much is they're going to say, oh, the bill will only include two years of free college. And does that mean that at the end of two years, there's no more free college? No, at the end of the two years, the only way you get rid of free college is everybody in Congress would have to get together and get rid of free college. What's well, hard to get rid of free stuff. Once people get yeah. free stuff, they think they like it. But in the end, we're all going to pay for this, either through more taxation or more inflation. And what happens through inflation is it's an insidious tax and it affects the working class and the retired pension folks that have fixed incomes more than the rest of us. And it's why a decade later, if you make $35,000 a year and a decade later you make $38,000 a year, you're like, how come I'm not any richer? It's mm -hmm. because now your $38,000 buys $33,000 worth of goods because of inflation. And so this is the real trick. But it's a bait and switch and it's an intentional thing. The Democrats are wanting to buy your vote with free stuff. They give you free stuff, but they don't tell you the honest truth that your money will buy less each year and that in the end, you won't be any better off. What do you think Biden believes in his heart of hearts? I mean, I can't imagine that he actually thinks that taxing $3.5 trillion of the bad guys that he keeps saying don't pay their fair share is actually nothing and it won't add to the debt and it won't cause inflation and everything else. But you think it's just like the train has just gone here and he's just going in on all of it? You know, I think the, the big syndrome among most Democrats, if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, is that they are big heart, small brain. And so they, they think with their heart and they just want to help people. Don't you just want to help people? But they don't think through the consequences of this. It's sort of like unemployment. We just want to help people. So why don't we double the unemployment? But what it does is it leads to people staying out of work longer. And in the end, when they decide to go back in the workforce, people are like, well, you've only been out of work 10 weeks, but you've been out of work a whole year because the, the, the benefits were good. You know what? I'd rather have the guy who's only been out of work 10 weeks. He seems hungrier to me. And so you create a whole class, an underclass of people who are unemployable and no longer part of the workforce. And that wasn't good for them. Work is good for the soul, good for the heart. I mean, it's good for the person. And once you get them out of the workforce, you've done a disservice to that to them, and you make them sort of a dependent on the Democratic largesse, and then they become a solid Democrat voter because they no longer work or pay taxes. We, we've developed a society of workers and non-workers. Most of the workers are voting for less government and less taxes. Most of the non-workers are, if they vote, are voting for more government and more, more welfare. So what do we do about this debt ceiling situation. I mean, basically everyone watching this knows if you got a $2,000 limit on your credit card and you hit it, your next purchase isn't going to go through. You can't just tell the bank, oh, no, 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 now I want five, now I want 10, now I want 20, but that's how the government operates. 
Democrats want to bust the budget with these enormous bills. They need to vote to raise the debt ceiling. It can be done. They can do it through the same way they're going to raise the spending and taxes on us through budget reconciliation. They can raise the debt ceiling. But here's the thing. There's all this sturm and drang about, oh, no, what are we going to do? The debt ceiling. We bring in probably, I don't know, we bring in about $3.8 trillion, over $100 billion a month, a couple hundred billion dollars a month we bring in. Uh, The interest payment's $300 billion a year. So, you know, we got plenty of money. I mean, you bring in $3.8 trillion and the interest payment's $300 billion. How come we can't pay the interest? So there's no reason to ever default. All you'd have to do is prioritize your interest payments. Now, it would mean you might have to cut some waste and you might have to cut some spending in government. But if we needed to in the next year, we could actually balance our budget in the next year. And what we would do is we would spend the money on interest and we'd probably spend the money on Social Security. We'd probably spend the money on Medicare. And then a lot of the crap like, you know, watching a lizard on a treadmill might go out, watching Japanese quail snort cocaine, that might go out, studying Panamanian well, frogs to see if the country frogs are, you know, have a better call to get mates than the city frogs have. I mean, you might cut some of the crap out that government spends money on, um, which we need to do anyway. And we never do it. But uh, now we, there's the, the whole thing's a charade, the, the, you know, the debt ceiling. They will eventually raise it. They can do it on their own, but they want to share the blame. They want us to share the blame for the debt bomb that's working its way into our system. And I want no part of it. I'm not voting to raise the debt ceiling because I'm not voting for the spending. Man, I should be living in Kentucky. Uh, I know you're crunched on time here, so I got one more for you, which is that a whole bunch of my audience, and I would include myself in this, we're having trouble seeing the silver lining right now, that star in the distance, vaccine mandates, people losing their job, inflation, just the endless lies from the media, big tech censoring people, like the whole thing. And, you know, the California recall went horribly, so, you know, I've been depressed about that. Like, what, do you see a star in the distance here? Do you see something sort of tangible more than just human spirit? That's what I've been trying to give people. Well, you know, I would say rather than looking for a silver lining or saying we have something good coming, uh, if we do nothing, we've got the gulag coming. So if you don't want the gulag, fight back. But I will say this. If you want a note of optimism, capitalism is incredibly resilient. Look at the wealth around you. Travel our country and see such extraordinary wealth. Not a few people. Thousands upon thousands of people doing well. People, look, in my town, I have people that came from Bosnia, um, you know, 10 years ago, and that are some of the most successful people in my town. One gentleman I know owns four restaurants. You bust your ass to run a restaurant. He's worked hard, he's earned his way in America, and he's a great American now. That's happening, still happening, despite how big government is, and despite the obstacles and despite the threat of socialism, capitalism is amazingly resilient. We're doing amazingly well. There's less poverty in the world than at any time in world history. When you measure poverty as extreme poverty, less than $2 a day, less than 10% of the people live in extreme poverty now. In 1820, almost everybody in the world lived in extreme poverty. So we've come a long way. But we need to remind people we're here and we made this incredible success because of capitalism. Senator Rand Paul, I thank you for taking the time and I thank you for fighting the good fight in a place that uh, it's not too common. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast. And don't forget, you can watch my direct messages live on Blaze TV and YouTube every weekday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern.
And of course, if you want to connect with me personally and get early access to my sit-down interviews, join rubenreport.locals.com.